We hear a story that started like this. It was a dark and stormy night. It's like a famous beginning of a story. If you're a follower of, of Jesus, then you're in for a lot of happy times and joyful times and some dark and stormy nights. If you follow Jesus and you don't really have to follow him far, he will soon take you out over your head into deep water, just the way he works. Have you figured that out yet? Sometimes you'll find yourself with a problem that's just so big and so difficult and so painful and so impossible, and it will usually hit you when you're tired or weak or it's the middle of the night. And it will be so bad that you will not be able to do anything about it, humanly speaking. It will be totally out of your control. If you follow Jesus, you're going to get into circumstances like that. I'm willing to guarantee you that that is true. I met a guy in a circumstance like that a few years ago, and I was at a convention. There was this huge convention with thousands of people there, and I was standing on the upper concourse of this convention, and, and, the, and a guy kept walking past and kind of looking over at me. You ever get the impression somebody kind of wants to talk to you, or maybe they know you, and I'm thinking, do I know this guy, or what's up? Finally, the guy waits for an opening, and he walks over to me, and he goes, I need to talk to somebody. Can you talk to me? I'm like, sure. He goes, I'm in big trouble. I'm like, well, let's go where it's private. Let's move over here, and we can, you can tell me about it if you want to. So we just step over out of the way a minute. He just starts pouring his heart out, and he has got a problem. He's got a marriage problem. He's got a moral problem. He's got a legal problem. He's got a, he's got a problem that could blow apart his marriage. It could, it, could, it could cost him his job. It could put him in jail. Would you agree that's a difficult problem? And so my question in my mind, which I didn't express, was, so why are you talking to me? (laughs) Because I'm a total stranger, and I don't think, I don't know what I can do to help you. And he's like, you got to help me. So I talked to him for a while, and I realized this guy simply has to have hope. And he's got no hope. He's just like, man, this is the end of the road. I'm going to have all, I mean, my my life's going to be messed up, and and my my wife's going to leave me, and my kids, and I'm going to lose my job, and I might go to jail. It was just bad. And I realized he needed a picture of hope in the future. And so I said to him, well, you know, you got to do what's right. You got to make right what you did that was wrong. And you're going to have to pay the price that it cost. And you're going to, you know, repent. You're going to need to repent and turn to the Lord. And you're going to have to throw yourself on the Lord. You've got to turn yourself over to the Lord and to his mercy. And then let's just say his name was like Bob. And I said, like, Bob, someday you and I can meet here again. You and me, your family will be with you. We will sing together. We'll be here at this conference again. We'll be here at this convention again. You and I, we'll meet. We'll have a deal. We'll meet. And he said, I can't imagine that happening. I said, let's pray for that, that we will meet at this conference again. And a few years later, I was at that conference, and guess who walked up to me? This Bob, smiling ear to ear, and he comes over and just shakes my hand, and I shook his hand, and he looked at me and smiled, and I smiled at him. Tears started coming through his face. Guess what? The next year, I'm at the same conference. Guess what I see coming across to look at me, smiling, takes my hand. This year, he gives me this medallion, this beautiful medallion, the armor of God medallion. He goes, I want you to have this as a gift 
I had some counseling with him. We kind of had some ongoing ministry with him after that. But, but so every year he finds me. Well, this week I went to the conference again. And I had dinner. And I was in the dining room, and I was just talking with people. It was just a riot of a good time. You know, people you connect with over the years that love the Lord. And I looked up, and here comes this family again. This beautiful daughter, his wife, and this dear man. And he comes over, and he just embraces me. And he hugs me, and we talk. And I mean, it's just so good to see you again. And I ask about his family. And then we prayed together. It was just the sweetest, richest fellowship. But I remember when that poor man was in a storm that was so dark and so scary that he thought he was going to lose everything he had. It was a great day, I'll tell you. Went to my room. My parents had Jim Shetler come and preach for them one time. I don't know if you know who him. He's just a great guy. He's a pastor. Well, my parents called me as soon as he did, and they said, Kenny, that's what they call me, but you don't. Uh, they said, Kenny, Jim Shetler came and preached, and... He reminded me of you so much. And, you know, he, he, he preaches like you, he acts like you, he looks like you. It's surprising. You know, we just, uh, we, we loved him. This is my parents, yeah. Well, anyway, I go to my room assignment for this conference on Thursday, and, and they got me with Jim Shetler. That was pretty cool. So I went in and I told him what my mom said, and he didn't look all that excited about it, you know. But anyway, that was neat. And then I preached a couple of times. And I'd been thinking about that a long time. And what I do is, like, my life is kind of consumed with the next message I'm going to preach. And I'm thinking about that. And I'm praying about that. And that's all I'm thinking about. And so I got that one done. And then I'm going to go to the next one. And then when I got that one done and I was done with my preaching for the day, it's kind of like you go, oh, wow. Now I can just, like, hang out with people and have a good time. But then I thought, Matthew 14, 22 to 36. Because that's the way my mind works. When I'm done preaching, my mind goes immediately to the next passage that I'm preaching. And so all I'm thinking is Matthew 14, 22 to 36. I get out my iPhone. I read it a few times. And we had dinner. And after dinner, um, we're just talking with friends and just having a great time. And one of my friends says, do you need a ride to the convention center? I'm like, no, I'll walk. And he goes, well, it starts in three minutes. I go, okay, I need a ride. And so we go to the convention center, and the guy speaking is a guy who's a Christian attorney. His, his name is David Gibbs, Jr. He's a great preacher and great uh, preacher and storyteller guy. And, and so he's going to be the main preacher in the convention and that night. And guess what he does? He gets up and he says, my text tonight is... Is that amazing? I was like, thank you, Lord. He's so good to me that way. He goes, I know you didn't study like you should have. So we're going to have a little session right here. But isn't that something that the Lord would have us land at the same exact place at the same exact time? And I sort of took that as just a little personal encouragement to me. And I was looking forward to being with you and telling this story, this famous story of Jesus walking on the water in a very dangerous storm. Can you imagine Let's set it up. Let's remember, when we talked about this last week, what had happened. Jesus has met on, this, on the kind of the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he's fed probably 20 or 25,000 people. 
Remember, it was an evening scene. The sun is going down. The birds overhead. It's the spring of the year. And he feeds them fish like they've never had and bread like they've never had. And there's plenty left over. And everybody eats and they're full. And then the Bible says in another one of the Gospels, then they want to make him king. <laughs> they want to force him to be king. He's like, time out. It's not time for me to be king yet. Not the way you're thinking. And the disciples are like, it sounds like a good gig to me. I mean, you're the king. We hang out with you. We're your disciples. You're the king. We're in your cabinet. He's like, get in the boat, guys. It's not time. Get in the boat. Go on home. He puts them in a boat. He's like, get he says to the disciples, get in a boat. He sends them home. And then, before, remember the, the disciples, when they couldn't feed the multitude, said, send them away. Jesus feeds them, and now he says, now send them away. When they want to make him king, Jesus goes, I'm going to have to send you away now. It was getting dark, and he didn't have a place for him to sleep, and he wasn't going to do another miracle for that. He just says, I want you to go home, and he sends the crowd. So he puts his disciples in a, gets them in a boat, sends them back. They're going to cut across the north lip there of the Sea of Galilee back to the area of Gennesaret near Capernaum. And it's going to be an evening outing on the boat. <laughs> but what Jesus knows, they don't know. Because if they knew what Jesus knew, none of them would have ever got in that boat. But they get in the boat because Jesus says, get in the boat. And I was kind of wondering when he said, get in the boat, did he kind of have a little funny smile on his face? <laughs> he said, hey guys, <laughs> get in the boat. And the, the fact of the matter is they hadn't really learned their lesson. Even though he fed the 5,000, they had not quite got the lesson he wanted to get them. So he's like, <laughs> get in the boat and I'm going to go pray for you guys. He doesn't say that, but that's what he's going to do. He's going to go up on a mountain. He's going to pray for them all night. He's going to set them in the boat into a storm like none of them, the perfect storm, like none of them have ever had. The next day when, after this happens, he's going to go to Capernaum. He's going to show up in the synagogue in Capernaum, and he's going to teach. You understand what happened. Jesus now has fed these thousands of people, the multitudes. They want to make him king. He sends them away. They go back home. Most of them would have gone across, over the north lip of the Sea of Galilee back to Capernaum or wherever they lived around that area. Many of them, hearing that he would be speaking the next day in the synagogue, would have come to hear him. Guess what his message was? Anybody know? I am the bread of life, he says. Wouldn't that have been like electric charged after he fed everybody and they're all buzzing about that? This guy fed thousands of us and the bread was like we never had before. And then he goes, we got to go hear him preach in the synagogue. And I think if you'll allow my sanctified imagination to run wild, it's got to be full house in the synagogue. And Jesus gets up and he says, I am the bread of life. You know how like I satisfied your hunger yesterday physically? I'm the only one that can ever satisfy your spiritual hunger. I am the, can you imagine the chutzpah of a man saying, I am the bread of life. I'm the only person that can ever satisfy you. Listen, only Jesus can talk like that. And he did, and the people heard him, and they wrote it down, and he is the bread of life. And if you have any need or any desire for satisfaction today, I can save you some time. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. But the disciples didn't get the picture, so he sends them in a boat, and he goes up and he prays for them. And this sets up the passage where we are in Matthew 14, 22. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into the mountain by himself to pray. In the north end of the Sea of Galilee, there are that the, the rest of it is like beautiful, like 
kind of hills surrounding the Sea of Galilee, but in the north end, there's the mountains. And he goes up into the mountains to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, on the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. (laughs) And the disciples saw him walking on the sea, and they were troubled. It's a ghost, they cried out with fear. Pretty interesting story, wouldn't you say? You don't want to get that kind of like, it's what I call like Sunday school Valium. It's like you heard that in Sunday school, so now you're kind of like on Valium and you're not really listening to the story. Did anybody pay attention to this? The man's walking on the water in a storm. It's not something you see every day. Jesus comes walking and it's not like, oh, there's a bit of a breeze out there. It's contrary wind. It's coming in all directions at the same time. Sea of Galilee is very dangerous, they say this way. Wind sweeps off the Golan Heights. You can get into some storms really fast, and it's this common theme in the New Testament. This happens. This is what's going on. It's not just a storm. It's a storm in the night. It's not just a storm in the night. It's a storm in the night, and Jesus is not in the boat. So the disciples, some of them are seasoned mariners, fishermen. They've been on the lake before. They've seen storms come and go. But this night, they are totally unwound, and they are crying out. Men don't do that until they don't have anything else they can do. You can see this guy's going, that's not a problem. We got, I've been in these storms before. Here, y'all settle down, landlubbers. I'll show you how this works. But they're like, help! And it's like, Jesus then, and of course in another of the Gospels, it says he saw them. He's praying for them on the mountain. He's been praying for them ahead of time. And he can see them, and they're toiling and rowing against the wind. It's almost as if there's this great sympathy that Jesus has for these guys who he just sent into a storm, and he's praying for them. And so he says, I'm just going to walk up there and be with them. (laughs) So he he walks on the water in the storm, and they're freaked because they think it's a phantom. They think it's a demon. You understand people then, too, they just, the, the, the sea to them was a necessary evil. And they looked at the sea as a place like the abyss where bad things come out, demons and hell. And so they think, okay, now this is all bad. It was all wonderful yesterday when we were on the slope and we were all eating and we were hanging out with Jesus. And now it's all bad because now we're in a storm. We're all going to die. And to complicate things, we got demons walking out here. <laughs> this is not good. They think it's bad. We know the end of the story, so we know it isn't bad. We know this is a really good turn in the story. They're not alone. Jesus is coming out there. <laughs> so he comes out to them, and they say it's a phantom. And they cried out in fear, and immediately, three times in our little short text, Jesus, this is immediately term Matthew uses. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, be of good cheer, I'm here. <laughs> be of good cheer. It's, it's me. Don't be afraid. It is I. Be of good cheer. It is I. Don't be afraid. So in this storm, they're alone. It's the middle of the night. They're completely beyond their own resources. Here comes a, what, they, what they think looks like a demon out of hell. And they cry out in fear. And then they hear this familiar voice over the wind. And he's saying to them, be of good cheer. It's me. You don't have to be afraid. 
The next thing that happens isn't in the other Gospels. It's just a shocker. Like, you ever, you ever read about stuff Peter does, and you, and you think, what was he thinking? Immediately, Peter goes, well, if it's you, tell me to come out and walk out there to you. <laughs> and can you imagine the other disciples going, what in the world? What, what makes Peter think these kinds of things? But he has this, this kind of holy boldness, if you will. When we were in the Holy Land, did I ever tell you we went to the Holy Land? If I mention that, in case you wondered, that's me right there. That's, that's me. It's not a picture of, of the Holy Land. It's, it's a picture of, of me in the Holy Land. I just want you to see it. And, um, and I'm standing on a high place. And you, if you could see over the lip right there, this is like, ooh, it's an amazing place. Because right over the lip of that is the Sea of Galilee. It goes out to the south there. And that was a day, I'll tell you. It was a gorgeous spring day. Must have been a lot like the day when Jesus fed the 5,000. A gorgeous spring day. And looking from there, it's just one of those like breathtaking, wonderful scenes. This is the mountain on the north lip of the Sea of Galilee. This is a little bit what it looked like when you look down from there. If you can see that. Is it a little difficult for you to see that? You just have to go. And there's the sea, the the lake, uh, Sea of Galilee. Now, when we took this tour, it was interesting because our, our tour guide, Bill, he, uh, and teacher, he took us to a little spot, which was down the hill a bit from this, a little bit of a different area, but the same area north of the Sea of Galilee. And he just, he got real serious and quiet. It was like, you got the impression that he didn't want you talking, chit-chatting, and he just kind of was, he had his game face on, you know. So he goes like, follow me, and he goes walking up the hill. So we go following him, and we got a feeling that it's kind of sober. He walks up and he kind of kneels down on this hill and he quotes the entire Sermon on the Mount. It's pretty neat. So you got, you're in the land of Jesus' birth. You just have a guy quote the Sermon on the Mount. You got chills running up and down your spine. He walks down the hill a little bit and there's this cave. Can you see it? It looks like that. I'd never heard about this before. There's just this cave, this little place where people built fires People would stop at this cave and they would stop. People would be wiping their eyes when their guide told them what this cave was traditionally believed to be. This cave is traditionally, I guess for centuries, Christian people have believed, though the Bible isn't precise about it, that this is the place where Jesus found shelter and perhaps even built a fire and he could see the disciples toiling in the storm and he prayed for them from this cave. So I don't have a picture of it, but I, of me in this cave, but I did get one. My eyes were not dry. When I thought of this gorgeous scene of these men that Jesus cared about and loved, but they needed some learning. <laughs> so he sends them into this horrible storm until they are totally out of control. And then he, and he's, but he's been praying for them ahead of time all night. And now when they're just toiling against the, in the night, toiling against the storm, and then he goes out walking out to them, not really because he wants to save their lousy necks, but because he wants to teach them who he is. That's why. And Peter gets into it. He's like, if you're him, ask me to come to you. (laughs) More or less like, since you're Jesus, ask me to come. And he gets out of the boat and goes down. I mean, you've got pitching waves. And and Peter gets out of the boat. I, I don't know what you think, but I sort of admire this. I don't know if I'd even thought of it. 
Peter's not just saying, it's neat what you're doing. He's like, could I do that? (laughs) He actually, and Jesus says to him, come. Peter doesn't need any more encouragement than that. And when Peter came down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go out to Jesus. (laughs) You've heard this story, right? When he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and he began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. So he's doing well. He gets out of the boat, he's walking, and then he looks at the wind, and the wind kind of really is boisterous. It's very frightening. And then he he begins to sink. And he cries out, Lord, save me, and immediately there he is again. Immediately. Immediately. He cried out, and immediately Jesus reached out, and he said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did he say that? I mean, wouldn't it have been perfectly legitimate to doubt? <laughs> if, uh, I doubt if I can walk on water. How about you? It's interesting that Jesus said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Wouldn't it have been perfectly legitimate to doubt? Well, you gotta, get, you gotta get in your mind what's been going on. Think about what we've been talking about here in Matthew. Jesus has healed people, cast out demons, done little things like raise the dead. He's taught like nobody's ever taught. He's astounded the teachers and the Pharisees. He's done all of these things and he's never sinned. He's just fed the 5,000 with five little loaves and fish. And he's trying to say to the disciples, have you got it through your head yet that I can do whatever I want to do? And they don't quite have the lesson learned. And we know this because in the passage in Mark, it says, because of the, of the hardness of their hearts, they didn't believe yet. Here's what it says, Mark six fifty two, For they had not understood about the loaves. In Mark, where it's talking about Jesus walking on the water, in that same passage, he goes back and says, they had not understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. Isn't that interesting? In other words, if you, if you put those accounts together, you realize Jesus is continuing his teaching. That's what he's doing. It's like, I was trying to teach them something with the loaves, and they don't quite have it down, so we're going to do the sea, storm on the sea in the middle of the night thing for them <laughs> until their hearts are tender, and that tender heart leads them to believe. It's a great story. So then it says, and he said, when they... When he saw the wind was boisterous, was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Verse 31, and immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, caught him, and said, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased, and those who were in the boat came and worshipped him. That means they fell down at his feet. And then they said, Truly, you are the Son of God. Matthew wrote this out of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is the climax he's building toward helping people to understand that God is going to faithfully take you into circumstances beyond your control until you worship him and you say, truly, you are the son of God. He's good that way. That's what we need more than any other thing, to fall at his feet and say, you are who you said you are. You are the son of God. Did you come to that point yet? Wonderful thing to get there. And then there's this little parenthesis in verses 34 through 36. 
kind of like more than the same. And when they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all the surrounding region and brought him all who were sick. There they go again, right? Begging him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. (laughs) That's something. Truly you are the Son of God. They said, when they fell down at his feet. Uh, here's what I think. I think Jesus loves holy boldness like that. I, he loves, I think, guys like Peter that go, you're walking on the water. Can I do that? You're saving sinners. Can I be involved in that kind of business? I think I'd like that. Let me give you some lessons on the lake. Isn't that cute? Lessons on the lake. I was sort of proud of myself when I came up with that. <laughs> Number one, have you got this? Jesus will send you into storms. You got that, right? Anybody in a storm? <laughs> yeah. Two, while, before he sends you in a storm, and while you're in a storm, he'll be praying for you. We know that's true because he's interceding, always interceding for us. He's praying. You're not on your own. He's praying for you. He's up in a mountain of God, and he's seeing you toil through the night. He knows you're desperate. He knows your mistakes that you made. He knows you're a slow learner. He understands all about. He's still loving you. He's still praying for you, and he won't leave you alone. He will come to you. Sometimes in the middle of the night, and the storm is so bad, he will come to you. And you will feel his presence with you. You will know he loves you. And you will know he's real. And sometimes you got to get in a storm to have the experience of knowing that Jesus will come to you. There's another thing he loves, that holy boldness, that taking initiative. And he loves that continual dependence. Peter says, I'm going to depend on you. And then he looks away and he sings. And Jesus said, give me your hand, Peter, you knucklehead. You know, you have little faith. I think that's the spirit there. He wants us to live in that continual total dependence. Not looking at the waves, but looking at him. And he wants disciples with tender hearts who believe he can do anything. <laughs> Take your hymn books. And I want you to sing with me. A hymn about worshiping a God that can do anything. It's number five in your hymn book. I'd like you to stand with me as we close our service by singing, Oh, Worship the King. Stand and let's sing.